Hey there, welcome to the Bitcoin for Business podcast. This is your host, Matt Aaron. I'm doing periodic episodes when I can find interesting people that are underground. I'm going to get James Howells on next. Howellsley, I know you're listening to this podcast at some point. We'd love to tell your story. Today we have Checksum Zero, a legend in the mining space, a Quebecer out of French Canada. And we talk about a lot of things. We cover a lot of ground. I fire off maybe 25, 30 questions talking about how he got into BTC, you know, just getting into cryptocurrency. Why did he do it in the first place? Way back when in, in 2010, behind the scenes of running a mining operation, what keeps him up at night, strategies for miners today in 2020, his take on Bitcoin Cash from a miner's perspective. You know, what's going on now, the IFP, BCH node, general protocols, which he is an advisor to, and what he thinks about the ideal roadmap for Bitcoin Cash. He's highly intelligent, highly skilled, and has done quite a bit for the cryptocurrency community in general, not just Bitcoin Cash. And I believe this is the first audio interview he's ever done. I really hope you enjoy it. And to support the show, you can donate on read.cash. Or if you're in the U.S. or have friends in the U.S., go to crazycalm, C-R-A-Z-Y-C-A-L-M dot C-O and order some coffee. We give you 10% off our CBD coffee if you pay with Bitcoin Cash. It's CBD infused, so it gives you relaxing energy without the caffeine crash. The perfect work from home drink. Okay, I'm bringing in Ian now. Enjoy the show. Ian, better known as Checksum Zero, welcome to the Bitcoin for Business podcast. Thank you. And Ian, starting off, I have a long list of questions for you. You have a, a pretty low profile in the cryptocurrency space for having over a decade of experience and very well connected and influential in, in the industry. Yeah, sure. And why do you usually shy away from interviews in, in the spotlight? Oh, you know, it's a old crypto guy thing that you know, our anonymity is pretty much important. So that's not something that people tended to do in the past. Uh, things are changing, though. So it's uh, it's getting okay to to be more public. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I appreciate you doing this. I'm more of a, a new school crypto guy, 2016, 2017. Let's start with the old days. I mean, first, Ian, how would you describe your your life before Bitcoin? You're in you know French Canada and Quebec. What was it like? Well, you know, not to go back in my <laughs> when I was a child, but uh, before I, I joined crypto, I started using Bitcoin. Uh, I was actually in school. Uh, I was um, doing a master's degree in me mechanical engineering in university. Crypto is not really something that I was taking care or looking into before I found Bitcoin. But you mentioned to me, I think last summer, you mentioned that you were running a Tor server when you discovered Bitcoin. Is that the first time... That you heard about it? Yeah, actually, I had two dedicated servers that I was renting. I was running Tor exit nodes from them. Running exit nodes require a lot of bandwidth and memory, but it doesn't require a ton of CPUs. So I was looking for something to do with my CPUs. So one night in January 2010, I looked on the internet, on Google, was looking for something to do with my CPUs. Actually, I wanted to donate the CPU time to something. I didn't know what, you know, I knew about like stuff like folding at home, but nothing else otherwise. So I was looking for something to do with them. And that's when I found Bitcoin. I thought the, the idea was pretty cool. And why were you running Tor servers? 
Excellent notes. Oh, it's mostly uh, for because it's great to support the network that bring anonymity on uh, to the world. So, is it fair to say something like the Electronic Frontier Foundation Digital Privacy and Rights? You're you're a pretty strong proponent of that. Oh uh, yeah, I was before even I discovered Bitcoin. It's something that's pretty important at the time. I was doing it mostly for to help Chinese people. You know, things changed since then. It's not really easy as it was to use Tor inside China now, but. Uh, it was mostly to you uh, to help Chinese people to get out of the Great Firewall. So, Ian, that is interesting with respect to China. You were originally helping Internet Freedom to combat the Great Firewall in China, and then you became on to be doing mining now for a decade, Bitcoin mining. And where is the greatest concentration of miners and mining operations? It's in China. Yeah, it's a pretty strange twist of, you know, uh, what I've been... In history, uh, Chinese people have been able to take the lead of their future. It's still not really uh, as it should really, but they, they are working toward it, which is great for them. Well, they are still under the Great Firewall, which is not good, but at least they can they get some freedom themselves through stuff like Bitcoin. Yeah, and uh, tell me a little bit about some of the key relationships you made in, say, 2010 and 2011 in the Bitcoin world when it was still, I mean, it was a much smaller project. Yeah, well, back in the days, you know, people, there was no feud between, you know, small blockers and big blockers that didn't exist. So everybody was pretty much talking to each other. We had great meetups. Um, Montreal actually was a great place for Bitcoin. There was a ton of places that accepted Bitcoin until 2015. We had a huge meetup. I met most of the people that you know today that are currently small blockers. But things changed after that. Blockstream started in Montreal, right? Uh, yeah, actually, they were registered first in Montreal. Yeah, and so it was quite different then. I mean, Montreal, it's interesting that Montreal and Toronto, two cities that have played a lot into the cryptocurrency industry. So I guess like those relationships, I'm thinking Francis Puglio, a lot of the French Canadians, as well as some of the Blockstream people today were, were coming to these meetups. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Francis, he started the uh, Bitcoin Embassy, which is currently a dead project, but it was a great project to uh, bring uh, Bitcoin into Montreal. Just too bad that, you know, the Bitcoin ecosystem in Montreal died because of the fees on Bitcoin that, that were too high. So right now there's not much going on in Montreal uh, related to using Bitcoin. There's a lot of people that are doing stuff on Bitcoin loans and stuff like that, the ICOs, and, but not really use cases or as peer-to-peer cash. Yeah, and I, I mean, I got to meet you through our Bitcoin Cash meetup group, which is really you, me, three, even Florent, like a few people, but it was a very small group. I wish the group was bigger, but nonetheless, we had some really good conversations. And you mentioned something that was quite interesting. We're last summer in downtown Montreal, outdoors, having a beer. And you mentioned that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you said that you had recently gone or you're going to visit Gavin Andreessen at MIT for some type of closed meeting. And Gavin is one of the most influential people and a hero of sorts in, in the Bitcoin world. Uh, what were the types of things that subjects that you guys talked about? Actually, uh, it wasn't a closed meeting. It was a small conference in uh, at the MIT. He went through everything, you know, and like the early days of Bitcoins and is some of his opinions. Uh, as far as I know, it was his last public appearance uh, that he did. You know, publicized a lot. A really small room in the, at the MIT. But um, it's just too bad that people like that, like Gavin, they, they'd rather, you know, stay away from Bitcoin than get involved at this point. Gavin has a lot of insight and he'd rather keep them to himself than 
uh, talk right now. That's fair. And But this was last year, though, right? Uh, yeah, it was last year. Okay. So is it fair to say, though, that Gavin still, I mean, maybe he's not that involved, but he still follows the cryptocurrency space. I know he, I think he tweeted he made a, a commit to an, a, an Ethereum project recently. Yeah, as far as I know, he's still involved. He's keeping tab on stuff, but from really far away. Cool. And so, Ian, you started mining Bitcoin, and so you're using, what, like a, a CPU at the time when you started in 2010. It's been a long time. If you had to guess off the top of your head, how many blocks have you won over the years? Over 5,000. Over 5,000 blocks. Wow. Yeah. Now, do you get a rush from it every time you see that notification? Does it kind of fade? Does the dopamine go away? Well, solo mining, it's not really something that we do anymore. You know, my company found a block on BTC a few days ago. Uh, a few weeks ago, just before BCH halving. So something that, you know, you can know through the pool that you found a block, but it's not something that you know anymore. You need to check if you found a block or not. But yeah, doing solo mining back in the days was pretty great. Pretty risky today. You know, it can be, uh, you can make a pretty expensive mistake and spend a few weeks without any income. So it's pretty risky. But when uh, you have a good straight, really lucky block, it's, uh, it's always a good feeling, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so winning a BTC block, not counting costs, which I realize is, is relevant, but just the the reward is like 40 times that of winning a block on BCH. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Now, let me ask you a question here. So since the BTC happening uh, last week, 30% of the hash rate has dropped off the network. Do you see a lot more minor consolidation happening in, in the future for BTC and Bitcoin Cash? So in the future, what we are going to see is a decrease in difficulty. In the, few, uh, the next few weeks, we are going to see the difficulty go down. However, it's the beginning of the rain season in China, so that means that Chinese people get a very cheap hydroelectricity electricity rate. So they are moving all this line to these locations that are only usable like five or four months out of the year. So that might postpone uh, you know, the drop in ash rate for a few months out. Uh, for sure, the S9, unless you have very, very good electricity rates, so sub two cents is unusable at this point in time. That's interesting. And I've heard this before from other people in the mining space that, you know, in general, because it's mostly uh, hydropower, that mining is cheaper in the summer, in the warmer months than it is in the winter months. And I believe there was like a mine somewhere near Tibet, in that region at least. And they were talking about how for their city that it was powered, they got like an 8x amount of excess electricity in the summer that they were negotiating to sell to Bitcoin miners. But it's, it's pretty fascinating, the movement, right? Because it's you, you build these mining operations, but you have to be able to shut down a move at, at a moment's notice. Yeah, it's uh, it's all Chinese do. Uh, it's all Chinese mine. Um, it's very different from here. Here, we don't empty the, the dam every, uh, every summer. We keep the dam full at the end of the summer to go through the winter. Well, in China, they have a a certain amount of uh, of water and there is not going to be any water on the other side of the dam at the end of the summer. So they need to spend the electricity to be able to empty the dam. So that's where the Bitcoin miners come in. They come in and they burn the electricity. They will, you know, otherwise the water will just go around the dam and be lost. Now, I think this is pretty obvious and you know this much better than I do, but I've even seen it from the podcasting space. Miners have a much uh, smaller share of not just podcasts, but just media in general. And they're often misunderstood. What are some of the biggest misconceptions about the Bitcoin mining industry from people that are inside the, the cryptocurrency space? 
currently, I'd say that it's it's the idea that uh, Bitcoin miners they make billions uh, a year. That's not what happened currently. Currently, we are making about well before the halving, we were making one two bucks, uh, let's say per unit of profit per day. Most of that earning go into paying for the electricity. So that's that's the main problem that of perception that uh, crypto people have. Okay, and another question, follow-up question here, and this is, again, to any BTC people that happen to listen to this podcast, uh, or maybe people learning about Bitcoin that hear this, is this whole idea that, oh, BCH is going to be centralized because of the size of a node. It seems like, and just in general, running a node, it's just, it's quite cheap. Like, when you look at mining, for miners that run nodes, you know, 99% is the, the cost of the machines and the cost of electricity, not, you know, not hard drive space. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, you know, running a node, it's not really part of the overhead. Anyway, it's the pool that runs the node, so the, for a miner, it doesn't matter. And in terms of the pool, you know, the nodes are not a significant part of the overhead. There's uh, part of other servers that are much more expensive to run, like the Stratum servers. So the mining node, they, the size of it, it doesn't matter. We can buy hardware, our drive, it's not expensive. The misconception that mining is so profitable when it's a much lower margin business, you know, having to continue to work in the food space, I'm not going to pretend that I understand how to run a mine operation, but I understand what it's like to work in low margin businesses. It's extremely competitive and you have to make a lot of decisions to stay profitable. And the, the line between profitability and losing money is pretty thin. I'm curious, what are some strategies for prolonging revenues you know, if you're mining hardware on your operations as the block difficulty increases? Main difficulty is to shop for your electricity rate to find a better place to run your electricity. Just where I am in Quebec, we pay, let's say, between 3 and $0.05 cents USD per kilowatt hour. Uh, if you go just to the province next to mine, which is in Labrador, they pay $0.02 cents per kilowatt hour. So it's a significant increase in margin there. Also, there's the firmware market. So people, they develop alternative firmware to load into a Bitmain machine that makes them more efficient. So that's a, that's the main step that people take to make their S9 still profitable today. Even if they have low electricity rate, they still need to have a more efficient S9 than the S9 that Bitmain sold to them two, three years ago. That's interesting. I'd never heard about the firmware. You mentioned Newfoundland or Labrador, the, the province. What has more uh, Bitcoin mining at the moment? Is it Quebec or, or Newfoundland? Uh, Quebec by far. Quebec by far. I, I think I know the answer to this, but I remember at one of our meetups in Montreal, right around that time, Samson Mao, he posted a photo with his girlfriend, who now is notorious for the gym friend saga. And they were on a boat in, you know, there's St. Saint, Saint Lawrence River, you know, right? And in downtown Montreal, and he's like, Blockstream just signed a huge deal for hash rate. We're going to democratize Bitcoin mining, blah, 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 in this tweet. What was your take on that situation and Blockstream in Quebec and their whole purported mining win? Well, actually, I knew it was not true to begin with. They claimed they got 300 megawatt from the Quebec government in terms of power. Ian, just real quick, can you just define how much 300 megawatts are for people that don't know that when it comes to mining? So it's about 300,000 houses. 300,000 houses. Okay, that's a good amount of power. Yeah, it is. It's a huge amount of power, yeah. So um, 
I knew it wasn't true because uh, the the Quebec government they just put a moratorium on Bitcoin mining, well, cryptocurrency mining in general. And a few months later, they come out with a huge number, which is 300 megawatts is a lot of power. So I knew it wasn't really true. Well, it turned out that they only had 20 megawatts in Quebec. The rest is uh, the rest of the 280 megawatts is a projected plan in the U.S. Actually, gotcha. Okay. So deception from Blockstream doesn't surprise me there. And I guess a lot of people listening don't know that. I mean, Quebec has, even though the majority or like the leading amount of water in all of Canada, it's, it's a very valuable resource for the province. Now, Ian, a question also today, right, in 2020, if someone wanted to start a independent Bitcoin mine, you know, warehouse, staff, equipment, etc., what's the estimated amount of capital you would need to, to get started? Well, you can start uh, small in your home. You can buy just a machine that's going to cost you between 10 bucks for a used machine. You can buy an, an S9 used for 10 bucks currently. Where, where do you get that for 10 bucks? On the used market, there's a lot of, uh, you know, place to buy on the used market. There's a significant amount of uh, used machine currently. There's group on Telegram to buy used machine and a lot of ways to buy them. Otherwise, you can buy a brand new machine from Bitmain. You're going to pay about 2000 bucks for the brand new machine. Oh, and you can go and stretch that up to several hundred megawatt mine that you are going to invest 20, 40 millions on. Fair enough. Now, let me ask you a question related to that. So in terms of just understanding the, the mining space, you know, China has a huge role there. And one thing that we've tried to do, I know Kelso does it, CoinSpice, you know, I tried to do so when I was doing stuff for Bitcoin.com, but just the whole idea of getting a feel for the miners, what matters to them and how they see Bitcoin cash. I realize there's a big language barrier, but you've interacted with them quite a bit and have relationships with them. Can you shed some insight to people about that, you know, the Bitcoin cash mining in China? Well, in China, it's totally different viewpoint than in the West. So they'd rather have more centralized teams working on Bitcoin Cash rather than being uh, decentralized and having several teams that compete together. So they'd rather have one team that control everything and that has a set, you know, a set way to go forward, a set roadmap, let's say. Is it fair to say they're pretty unified in their opinion about what needs to happen with Bitcoin Cash? Well, I cannot say that I know all Chinese manner, but the one I know, I think they agree that, yeah, it would be pretty unified, yeah. Gotcha. Another really interesting thing, I don't know if you remember this, again, this was last summer, 2019, and you know, Bitcoin ABC has done a lot, but they've also, there's been a lot of drama around them. Again, I'm not calling it good or bad. I'm just trying to stay neutral here. But you did mention, you hinted to me that there was a way to create a node that would fork ABC. And that was a year or almost a year ago, and it actually happened. I mean, the BCH node is now up and running. Tell us a little bit about that process and how does that, is that a bullish sign for Bitcoin Cash? Well, I see the fundraise that was successful for not only BCHN, but for, you know, new uh, Verde BCHD. That's pretty bullish to me. Uh, that's mean that it's a strong signal from the community that uh, the community want people to work together and work together to, towards something greater than what we have currently. Yeah. And it's interesting because there is this argument going around that, too much decentralization, too much competition. I don't know if you've been following this on Twitter or not, but I guess it really started heating up when ABC tried to implement the IFP. Yeah, absolutely. I've been following that. 
Okay, now let me ask you a question here. So the way I understood it is ABC would not remove the code for IFP, but still miners use Bitcoin ABC. I mean, I don't think you do, but if they upgraded the software, but the IFP code is still in there, is it just commented out or why didn't it activate on May 15th? Well, the code needed to stay there simply because we were into a process of voting for that IFP. The miners were actually voting every block that they found if they were agreeing or not with the IFP. Well, the result was pretty clear that they didn't agree with that. Uh, there was only, I think, two blocks, uh, two blocks that voted for the IFP, and it was a mistake from Npool, I believe. But it was important for the code to stay in there because it was a process that we were going through. It's simply important at the beginning it was on by default, and that's the main issue there. It was switched after that to off by default, and you know that's enough for uh, the miners. Voting for something, you need to act. You know, it's not a default. If it's the default, it needs to be the status quo. Gotcha. Okay. I appreciate the explanation. So and I think Amari talked about that too. He kind of said the same thing you did, right? That you can't just take the code out like so early before everyone's going to, to upgrade. Here's a difficult question. In a perfect world, what do you think would be the ideal roadmap and milestones for Bitcoin Cash, not only from a technical standpoint, but a user adoption and cultural standpoint? Well, personally, as a miner and as a user mostly of Bitcoin Cash, I think we need to step down, you know, step back a bit on the constant upgrading and changing the protocol. And we need to put our energy on uh, user adoption instead. Uh, our goal is to be peer-to-peer cash. Well, we have less usage than BTC at this point in time, so it's not... We can go up to 32 megabyte block size. It's not an issue. We have a ton of time to go and to reach 32 megabyte, but we don't have the volume. So we need to create that volume first. Okay. How do you think that volume will be created? Well, first, Bitcoin are proving that the IFEs, it doesn't work. They continue to prove it today again. How do they continue to prove it? Sorry? Well, I just had to pay like 80 something bucks for a transaction a few days ago. So it's pretty good proof that, the, you know, the small blocks doesn't work. Yeah. I'm just going to play devil's advocate, but you still paid it. So you still were willing to make the transaction on the BTC network. Yeah, because I had no choice at this point in time. Yeah. So we need to enable that choice for BCH usage and adoption. Okay. Again, I'm just presenting these arguments. Another argument people are making is that zero conf is too limited right now. What are ways to make zero conf stronger? Assuming you agree with that. Maybe you disagree and you think it's strong enough right now, but I'd like you to elaborate either way. Uh, for zero conf, it's pretty, it's it's good enough at this point in time. Well, hold on, let, let's do an example. So you said good enough at this time. Let's just say you and I were meeting up tonight for a poker game in Montreal and you're about to leave. And let's, let's pretend we're, we're strangers and we're playing with BCH and I say, or maybe I have to buy chips with BCH. And I say, okay, Ian, can I buy $1,000 worth of chips and I have to send you $1,000 worth of BCH? Would you be comfortable giving me the chips with $1,000 worth with, uh, with zero conf? Absolutely. As long as, you know, the amount that you transact is not a significant amount of the block reward of one or two blocks, it's going to be safe enough. It starts to not be safe enough when you're talking, let's say, 5,000, 10,000 bucks. Or even on BTC, on BTC, it will be a four block reward, so it will be almost 100k. That's when it starts to be not safe enough, because for miners, it's... If you want to bribe a miner, 
it becomes the miners uh, starts to see the the advantage of being brighted instead of getting his block. You know, if his block get orphaned, it's not a big deal anymore. Gotcha. Now, what about the difficulty adjustment algorithm and the variability? Is there a way to make more consistent timing among finding these blocks? Absolutely. There is other algorithm that people are working on to, uh, right now. And there was other algorithm when we switched to the DA first. The other algorithm that shown that they wouldn't bounce like the current DA bounce. Also, uh, other people are working on other, yeah, you know, fixed to the DA so that it doesn't bounce all the time like that. Gotcha. Because that would be a huge improvement just if it happened every 10 minutes. Because, for example, let's say we're at this poker game and I want to buy $10,000 worth of chips from you in BCH. For 10000 bucks worth, we can wait 10 minutes, up to 10 minutes. I guess average would be five minutes if it happens every 10 minutes, right, for the block to confirm and get a confirmation. Uh, no, actually, no, the average will be 10 minutes uh, because mining is mem- memoryless. You're always about 10 minutes away from finding a block. It's a hard concept to understand, but it's the truth. All right. Yeah. Well, even 10 minutes then. So we could wait 10 minutes for that amount. And and I guess, obviously, if the security is based on the size of the block reward and there's not a having until 2024, if there's more usage and the value goes up, then also the value that can be safely spent on zero conf goes up, making it more usable. So it can kind of work together in a positive feedback loop. Exactly. So, you know, when the bid the value of Bitcoin Cash goes up, the value of what's safe to trade with zero conf it goes up. There's also a way to make ZeroConf more safe, like there is fraud proof and also Avalanche if you want to go that way. It's not the way that I'm particularly fan of, but it's something that, that, can, that could help in the end. Yeah, so Tobias Ruck, you know, a talented dev in the space of B.Cash, he's been hyping up Avalanche. I don't mean hyping up in a bad way. I guess, like you said, you talked about being careful and what would the downsides of Avalanche be? Well, the downside is to miners. You are making proof of work pretty much useless. Depending how you implement Avalanche. Avalanche as a pre-consensus is fine. It's when you start to put the post-consensus that become an issue. So if you use Avalanche to like pool the miners and that the miners agree to mine the transaction, that's fine. The problem becomes when you want to orphan a block because they didn't mine the right transaction that's when it becomes an issue there. So you're saying that a pre-consensus avalanche could be a, a really positive upgrade for the Bitcoin Cash protocol. Absolutely. Okay. And then I guess the, you know, a lot of people argue on the internet is that, well, the implementations, need, they need more funding, more funding, more funding in order to make these things happen. Again, that's their argument. But what do you think about the protocol funding at the moment? Is it insufficient? Is it a risk for the BCH protocol? Where do you see it right now? Well, like the other implementation with a new Verde, BCHD, and BCH node, uh, they all raise what they ask for. Uh, that's a plan that they made themselves. They said, we need that amount of money to go forward for the next year or six months or whatever was the plan. And they got it. So uh, they proved that we can raise the money that way. It's important to fund the infrastructure to, the, to support it. But there's that right level of support that some other implementation seems to miss, you know. Now, what do you think about, it's kind of a broad question here, but just tell me your thoughts on SLP, what you like about it, where you see it going and its importance in the BCH ecosystem going forward. 
Well, it's a pretty good uh, protocol because uh, it re- it requires no change to the base protocol to to use. It's super popular. It's not the be all and all for Bitcoin Cash, but it's something that you know that's something that we can promote. Uh, colored coins were very popular on BTC before 2015 or so, and we brought that back to Bitcoin Cash. Which it's great in the end. Awesome. I think a good portion of the people working on BCH Node also work at general protocols where you're an advisor, right? Like emergent reasons being one of them, I believe. So that's pretty interesting. So, you know, you're an advisor to general protocols, which on it's kind of like a DeFi on BCH where you're able to hedge the price of BCH. I hope I explained that right. And, you know, my buddy Marcel is also there on the biz dev side. In my opinion, if general protocols is successful, which I'd like you to, to elaborate on, that's great because then you have people working on BCHN and general protocols. So there is an alignment of incentives there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the same thing, um, general protocols and NEH, it doesn't require any protocol change. Uh, I think it's important to support companies that don't need a protocol change to be able to use BCH. That's where we want to go forward. We don't want to cater to every company that needs, oh, we need that change because otherwise we cannot do it. Well, there's people that can figure out a way of doing it, and that's the people you want to support. You know, CDS, it was big help to this company. In CDS, it, it opens a lot of door to do stuff that we couldn't do before. I think it's plenty in terms of changes. That's very cool. And I suppose mining outfits could take advantage of any hedge holding crypto for any amounts of time, right? By hedging the price. That could be, especially if they're paying for their electricity in US dollars or, or another currency. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the use cases that uh, Emergent Reasons talked to me uh, in the early days. It's They've been working on uh, NEH for a long time at this one time. So it's one of the first uh, time that he proposed the idea to me and he asked me if miners would be interested to edge, you know, their block reward for USD or other fiat, you know, amount. So, yeah. That's when I started talking with them, and it's definitely something that that's needed. Also, BCH, it, it's need to be able to compete with other currency, and right now, the what's hot is uh, DeFi, so we need to be able to support them uh, that way. Where is you most about Bitcoin Cash going forward? Oh, it's mostly governance. We need a governance model uh, that takes everybody's needs into consideration so that we are not at the whim of either devs or miners or user. It's a network of people. We need to be able to take cater to everybody, uh, every need on the network. And how does that happen? Well, it happens, you can look at Decred, for example. It's a, pretty much a Bitcoin clone, but they added a small component of proof of stake on top of that, and that proof of stake is used as a governance model. So you buy your right to vote on proposals from devs that way. So it's Miners can buy their way in, uh, users, merchants, anybody, any services that use Decred can buy their way into voting pretty much. Interesting. So the Decred governance model, I, I don't follow them too closely, but I believe that there is or was a foundation last year and there was literally a, an on-chain proposal saying, hey, we think this you know, foundation is a liability, has too much power. Let's vote to dissolve the power of this foundation. And they literally all voted to dissolve it. And it either has or is in the process of being dissolved. So all it's all on-chain governance going forward. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a very interesting process. 
I've been following Decred for a long time, actually. I was mining them in the early days. I think it's a pretty interesting model. To go forward, it, it allows everybody to, to have a voice about how we, how we go forward with our network. Gotcha. So Decred, any other crypto projects that you, you keep tabs on? Uh, anything DeFi uh, currently. I think it's a new hot thing. So there's a lot of problems, you know, a lot of hacks and stuff like that. I think for the next few years, you'll hear a lot about DeFi. About the DeFi stuff. Yeah. Now, uh, final question. Another thing I found interesting about you, like mining, right? It's based on mining, I guess, mining gold. You are also in the gold mining business. What interested you about the gold mining operation and how long have you been involved? Oh, I became involved in late 2017. It was mostly to diversify. Uh, I diversify my portfolio and invest to other things. You know, gold, it's not really, I don't want to invest in gold to be able to, uh, to have a return from gold. It's mostly uh, as a way to hedge uh, crypto into something that's much safer. More like a speculative, I don't really mine gold. I own mines, but they are not in operation. Gotcha. Okay. Makes sense. Well, Ian, is there anything else I should have asked you or you'd like to share with the community? Uh, well, currently I'm working on uh, on a new Ashrate derivative market, which is going to be the next bit mix of the of Ashrate and mining. So keep an eye out for that. It's going to come out in a few weeks. Okay, cool. We'll make sure to update a link to the episode. I guess similar to what General Protocols is doing with the price of BCH or other crypto assets, you'll be able to hedge, go long short on, I guess, the cost of, of hash rate. Exactly. You'll be able to, to go long short in the on future market for the for hash rate. So it's based off the difficulty adjustment on BTC. So every two, about two weeks, you're going to be able to buy a contract for hash rate, trade it until the contract expire. And then when it expire, we deliver the hash rate to the holder of the contract. You mentioned BTC will only be on BTC to begin with, or will also be on BCH? It's going to be both. You know, we're only using the BTC difficulty adjustment period as a way to emit the contract. But when you, at the end of the period, when you win the contract, you can do anything you want with that hash rate. It could be to mine BCH, BTC, BSV, Piricorn, whatever is SHA to fifty sixty. Piricorn, old stuff. <laughs> That's old old school. I, I remember when I first yeah. heard about crypto. I didn't really understand what it was, and someone was like, "Hey, you should buy Piricorn. It's gonna be the next Bitcoin. It's still around, right?" It's still around, yeah. But it's pretty much dead. But it's still around. It's a mix of POW and proof of stake. It's a weird mix. So the more you mine Piricorn, the less you make mining Piricorn. So it's pretty weird, but it's still it's still around. <laughs> Man, it's great to have those experiments though. But well, Ian, Check Some Zero, thank you so much for this interview. And I really appreciate your time. It was my pleasure. There you have it. Check Some Zero. Check Some Speaks. I hope you learned as much as I did. What did you think of the show? Did you like it? Have I lost it? Did I never have it? Any opinion is welcome. Please share. Again, we'll probably have James Howells, early BCH miner, who notoriously misplaced a hard drive or threw it away that went to a dump in Wales that has a shitload of Bitcoin on it. Okay, yeah, again, this is on read.cash. Follow me on Twitter at Matt Aaron, M-A-T-T-A-A-R-O-N, and make sure to check out Crazy Calm CBD Coffee, relaxing energy anywhere. Well, if you're on lockdown for your home office, it's the perfect drink. Okay. Until next time, this is Bitcoin for Business.